ladies and gentlemen, my name is Tim Besley, and I'm a member of the Economics Department here at the LSE, and I'd like to wish you a warm welcome uh, this evening for this discussion of Meghna Desai's new book, Hubris, Why Economists Failed to Predict the Crisis and How to Avoid the Next One. Um, Megnad has a long association with the LSE, having spent almost all of his career here in the economics department, following his PhD at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in 1963. Originally from Gujarat, India, Megnad has played a distinguished role in public and academic life in the UK. Uh, he's been a member of the House of Lords since 1990. Uh, Megnad is an economist of extraordinary breadth, which will be apparent when you see him in action in a moment. His work spanned from the finer points in econometric methods to Marxist economics. Um, it's been a personal privilege to have been uh, Megnad's colleague here at the LSE. In my experience, he always offers both a refreshing and informed opinion on almost any issue you uh, discuss with him. Um, my favorite two stories of Megnad uh, both involve dismissal. Uh, one case where he was, wasn't dismissed and one where he was. Um, it may be difficult to believe um, when you see this picture of serenity uh, with me on the stage this evening that Megnad was once a firebrand and supported the student demonstrations for which LSE was famous in the 1960s. And I remember him telling me uh, that the only reason he didn't lose his job was because he'd just published a paper in Econometrica, one of the leading and most admired journals in economics. But I believe that Megnad had not long been in the House of Lords uh, when he was in fact fired from the Labour front bench for expressing his views about extending VAT, uh, a topic on which actually I believe he was correct, uh, and the Murley's review on which I served uh, uh, came to the same conclusion as Megnad. The moral of that story, of course, is that LSE is a much more tolerant and open-minded institution than the Labour Party, <laughs> but we probably knew that already. Uh, I know that we're in for a treat this evening uh, when he develops the ideas in his book. Moreover, he'll be available for a book signing uh, right after the lecture. Uh, since Megnad's book is intended to provoke debate, uh, we thought that we'd get this going right away by inviting two distinguished and knowledgeable discussants. Stephen King is a group chief economist of HSBC and a prolific author uh, with a wide-ranging knowledge of the global economy. Uh, he was also at the sharp end of the economic crisis in his day job. Uh, Charles Goodhart has been a member of the LSE economics and finance community for many years, having been a professor of economics here and founder of the Financial Markets Group. He was a founding member of the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee and had a number of influential advisory roles in the great LSE tradition of spanning academia and practical policymaking. Uh, after Megnad has introduced his, some of the main ideas, I'll invite Stephen and Charles to respond before opening the floor to questions and discussion. Uh, without any further delay, let me introduce Megnad Desai. Thank you. Thank you, Tim, very much. This was in the good old days when I was a fiery rebel. This place looked much tattier, but... Uh, much more crowded uh, than it used to be now. Anyway, thank you very much for inviting me to speak to my friends and many, many old acquaintances. The book uh, had actually a very dull title to begin with. I called it The Economic Crisis and the Crisis of Economics. And my publisher said, this is too boring a title. So we'll give it a title. 
and and you 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 kind of you jazz up the book a little bit so that it'll be interesting. But it has been written for non-economists. It's written for anybody who read it. And it first of all wants to um, you know the book you know is in sort of three parts. It first of all wants to answer the question Her Majesty the Queen asked when she opened that building uh, in in LSE. You know why didn't anybody tell us? <coughs> Uh, so, first of all, is why did economists fail to predict the recession? For that, you have to understand why do economists think the way they do. And for that, you have to know the history of economic ideas. So, the first third of the book, Morales describes how economists got hooked on the idea of equilibrium and how the idea of equilibrium has nothing whatsoever to do with mathematics because Ricardo was able to argue that without any algebra. And, uh, and it, it quite convincingly, Ricardo fixed the, fixed the parameters of that game, and we have been able, there ever since. So the first which traces through in the history of uh, economic ideas, very kind of, you know, at a fast pace, <clears throat> Smith, Ricardo, Walras, and later on Marshall, <clears throat> thing like that, Arrow the Brew. Uh, and so idea that economists took to the idea of equilibrium is a very powerful, simplifying, organizing idea. When the reality looks very chaotic, reality looks very, very chaotic, and you, don't, you can't really make sense of all these things going on, prices and quantities and people, you know, millions of people independently making decisions. And Adam Smith wanted to say, you know, there is an interconnectedness in the system. The invisible hand. I mean, this is an interconnected system, but you can't see the interconnections. You know, it is like almost subterranean interconnections, all driven by self-interest. Ricardo then basically sat down and and proved uh, uh, that you know supply uh, creates its own demand. And there's a marvelous episode uh, in the second volume of the complete works of Ricardo that Strafa edited. There is Malthus's uh, book with Ricardo's marginal comments. And every time Malthus gets close to arguing that there might be a, a glut, especially in, you know, 200 years ago, when a, when a Waterloo uh, battle, you know, was won, then, of course, the uh, government started cutting expenditure. And Malthus said, you know, there is in this unemployed labor and unemployed capital. And Ricardo said, it's not possible. There cannot be any unemployed capital and unemployed labor because if there is supply, there will be a demand for it. And poor Malthus pointed out facts, and Ricardo Morris said, facts have nothing to do with this. This is a matter of theory. And the surprising thing was that Ricardo was a very practical man. He was a stockbroker, member of parliament, landlord, and he could entertain some extremely abstract ideas so convincingly that for about 200 years, economists stuck to uh, the simple way Ricardo had uh, constructed the subject for us. And all that happens later on is that, you know, with Walras and so on, we change the uh, the kind of from labor theory of value to, to marginal utility and opportunity cost theory of the value, but the world remains the same. The economist's world is uh, almost always in equilibrium, because that is the way, that's the way, the, you know, with initial assumptions and ruthless logic, you can establish that that is equilibrium. And uh, 
no amount of empirical facts are going to move that because economists think that is just hand waving. You know, where is your proof? Uh, and so later on, you know, Marshall tried to kind of write in simple, simpler ways the same thing, but he, he kind of made it look like he was telling stories of the real world, average cost and marginal cost and how marginal cost cuts the average cost. And, you know, and it's so beautiful. The diagram, Marshall got diagrams, and people started believing that there are things like marginal cost and marginal revenue, which firms look at, and uh, and profit goes to zero in equilibrium and all that. We all believe that. Uh, somehow we, 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 we have students who graduate and go work in the city, and then they realize that the world doesn't work like that. But they're properly equipped to make their own adjustments, but not lose faith in economics. That's, that's a great secret. In, in all these people used to be trained in theology and then become ministers in, in, uh, to, to, to kings, you know, like, uh, uh, like Thomas Cromwell. You, know, you, you learn theology, but then with that training in the mind, you could solve practical problems without losing your faith in theology. Uh, anyway, then what happens? Then, then we have Keynes. Keynes is the first person to object to the idea of a unique equilibrium. And he said, no, no, there might be two equilibria, not just one. And uh, one equilibrium is the full employment equilibrium, and the other equilibrium is involuntary uh, equilibrium. And, uh, you know, most of you are too young to remember what, what an amazingly exciting thing it was for many, many people that for the first time economics began to talk about the real world, people thought. Keynes was able to explain that, yes, economy, free market economies, so-called, could get trapped into a situation of involuntary unemployment. And the important point was it was a stable equilibrium. It was an equilibrium out of which you could not easily get out by natural forces. It needed a push from an autonomous, non-market-related force. And that's why public investment became such an important thing, because public investment was not driven by considerations of profits or prices, things like that. But because, in a sense, there, there were two equilibria. They were both locally stable, if I may call them. And it was difficult uh, if an economy got trapped uh, into unemployment equilibrium, difficult to uh, uh, get it out. Now, second part of this book, therefore, explains how triumphant Keynes' idea was in the 30s and 40s and how it became part of textbooks uh, in the 50s and 60s. And many, many politicians of a certain generation didn't read anything else except that. And even now in, in, in the debates, there are people who still believe that what Keynes said was a, the fundamental truth and it cannot be challenged. I mean, there's a man called Anthony Crossland who wrote a book called The Future of Socialism. Some of you may have heard of socialism, uh, so I'm <laughs> reminding you. And his idea was that Keynes had more or less solved the problems of capitalism. There was going to be full employment. But Keynes had also shown that if you could, if you could redistribute income from the rich who save too much to the poor who consume a lot, then redistribution is not only progressive but economically efficient. And he therefore thought that you know, the, the Labour Party would then rule forever uh, because they had the key to making capitalism fair and, uh, and, and efficient. <clears throat> Didn't happen like that, sadly, but 
No, I, when, I, when I came here in 65, I had been more or less brought up on the idea that there was only uh, Keynesian macroeconomics. There was nothing else available. And during my time here, but say, especially being in the 70s onwards, I could see the disintegration of Keynesian economics by internal criticism within the academic profession. And the objection to Keynes and theoretical debates about, in a bit, about the Keynesian theory and policy framework were very much fought in academic terms, of course, uh, with prose and algebra and econometrics and so on, but especially Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman was, a, was an extremely uh, important person because he had, a, he had a very structured mind. He never wrote anything which was just to show off that he could do it. I mean, Paul Samuelson had that problem. He just wanted to show off that he could do a bit of mathematics. Milton Friedman was a very, very focused political economist. Everything he did had a purpose, and there was a kind of architecture to his work. But even before, before we get to that, you know, so one of the Keynes' thing was that he tried to show that the reason why there is unemployment is because uh, everything else works in neoclassical economics, he said. But the labor market has got a problem. <laughs> The demand for labor is all right. It works according to theory, marginal product, real wage, so on. But the supplier of labor cannot control how many hours he would work, and he cannot equate the marginal distributed layer of labor uh, to, to the real wage because bargaining takes place in terms of money wage, not in terms of real wage. Now, you know, it's very strange. If that was true of the supplier of labor, why wasn't it true of the demand for labor? You know, how come, how come the, 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 the demand renewed the real wage and the and, and supplied them, but that doesn't matter. A lot of the subsequent debate hinged on the fact that the orthodox theory said, ah, you have assumed money wage rate to be given, and the, it's a rigidity of money which causes unemployment. Remove that assumption, and your theory is destroyed. And so one of, you know, it became a, one of the problems of, of economics that did Keynes' theory depend upon rigidity of money wages? Now, you know, us Keynesians believed that no, that was not the case, but most other people, you know. And that began to be the, the entry point of the orthodox opposition to Keynes. And I explained how there was, first of all, a, a fatal embrace by Hicks with his ISLM model, if you could read about it, and then how people again and again said, the problem with Keynes and macroeconomics is that it doesn't dovetail with the microeconomics we teach. In microeconomics, all markets clear. In microeconomics, we don't worry about money wage. We worry only about re relative prices, real wages, you know. And how come suddenly we got something called macroeconomics talks about money wages? Keynesian economics had no micro foundations. And so a lot of battle back and forth, uh, some of which you can read in the book. And Milton Friedman, as I was saying, very systematically, first of all, he questioned the Keynes' theory of the consumption function. Then he moved on to Keynes' theory of inflation. The, the, the Keynes, Keynes didn't really discuss inflation very much. He discussed something about price changes. And during the war, he wrote something about how to combat inflation. But uh, it was in LSE that Bill Phillips, who was here when, when I joined, A.W.H. Phillips, had this Phillips curve. Phillips curve related inflation to unemployment. 
empirically. <coughs> and Keynesians thought that was the theory of inflation. Too much unemployment, prices won't rise. Too little unemployment, inflation. So if you don't want inflation, increase unemployment, which is somewhat uncomfortable for Keynesians because they're also somewhat left-wing. So then we had income policies and things like that. Anyway, Milton Friedman said, this is complete nonsense because Phillips curves in terms of money wages and unemployment, the rate of change of money and unemployment. And economics has nothing to say about how money wages relate to unemployment. Economics has to have real wages relate to unemployment. And just at about that time, late 60s, early 70s, inflation started accelerating. Wage bargaining became very, very contentious. And people realized that the workers were bargaining not just about money wages like that, but money wages on the basis of expected inflation rates, which, which makes common sense. So it wasn't right what Keynes was saying, that the worker can't, can't bargain about real wages. He was bargaining about real wages, but based on inflationary expectation. So the bargain was about money based on inflation expectation. If that is true, then the Phillips curve doesn't exist. You know, you cannot, given the rate of money wage inflation, determine unemployment, or you cannot from unemployment determine the rate of inflation. That proved to be a very basic objection to the entire Keynesian edifice. And first, Milton Friedman's uh, presidential address in 1968, and later on, what Lucas did, Robert Lucas did, with, it became clear that there was no such thing as Keynesian economics, Keynes economics had no micro-foundations. There could not be a Phillips curve. Unemployment was determined in many, many micro-markets. And the, whatever un unemployment existed was just some total of a variety of different uh, 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 sort of uh, markets. So in some sense, uh, neoclassical theory, uh, excuse me, Okay. Uh, this is my wife calling me from Goa. I can't talk to her. <laughs> uh, so, in, so in, in what, what, what they were saying that, you see, in neoclassical theory, in Ricardo or Walras, you don't need macroeconomics at all. Because the variety of individual markets equilibrate, and the macro is a sum total of the micro. Only thing you need for macroeconomics is the quantity theory of money, because micro only determines relative prices to determine nominal prices. You need MV equals PT. So, in a sense, by the time we got to the end of uh, what was called neoclassical macroeconomics in the sort of late 70s, early 80s, everything that Keynes had said had been more or less shown to be not consistent with macroeconomics. So if you think, you know, people started saying about as if economics was a building, it had of micro foundations. Macro was up there, it had to have micro foundations. But if you really have sound micro foundations, you don't need macro. You can just be an open terrace at the top and you're all right. So within, at least within my academic lifetime here, I could see the, the rise and fall of Keynesian economics until... Uh, we stopped teaching. Uh, I, mean, I should also say parenthetically that uh, soon after the general theory was published in 1936, when Hicks wrote his brilliant article 
about IS and LM. Everybody stopped reading the general theory because if you can do it in 10 pages, who wants to read 350 pages? But I was, I was, I was brought up in a backward department, so we had to read the text. And then I went to Pennsylvania where I had a teacher called Sidney Weintraub, who more or less or all neoclassical economics was junk, and the only true, true book was Keynes' General Theory. So I've got an addicted to it. But quite true that most people had uh, decided that <clears throat> there was nothing to Keynesian economics. We had to get back to neoclassical economics. Now, <clears throat> There still remained a something about the practical policy issue. People thought, yeah, you may not be right, but you know, in real life, there are imperfections and rigidities and things like that. So maybe fiscal policy would be effective. Especially fiscal policy would be effective at the bottom of the cycle. And the, the new classical macroeconomics people say, no, that is not actually true, because if you, if you decide to spend money, economic agents are so rational that they can figure out that that money will have to be paid for by increasing taxation in the future, and therefore the sum total of the saving they will make to pay the tax in the future would cancel out the multiplier effect of the, of the fiscal push. You, you need infinitely lived people for that, but that, you know, the, the integral works. So there was, there was this very, very uh, the great contrast between most politicians of either left or right still believed in, uh, in Keynesian economics, many newspaper uh, editorial writers believed, and in, in the academia it had been pushed. <clears throat> then, of course, we had this 2008 crisis. Now, you know, I, I quote Lucas uh, in saying that, you know, if you live in a world of rational, expect, rational expectations and efficient markets, it is not possible to predict such a big change. I mean, it's, it is not within the capability of the theoretical structure to be able to predict an extreme event like this. Or if anybody could have predicted an extreme event, it would not have happened because people would have taken countervailing actions. That, that, that is the essence of neoclassical new economics. And you know, I, I have great admiration for Lucas. I think, I think he really is an amazing, amazingly great economist. Because he honestly sees what the problem is and what the limitations of his own theory is. He doesn't fudge and doesn't make, make excuses. He said, no, this, week, this cannot be done. Not within. So the last part of my book says, okay, it is possible to say that if you have lived since 1945 to, say, 2008, uh, 63 years, and you haven't really had a serious economic crisis in that data set, and quite a lot of the time what economists did was they looked at a data set, they fitted a trend, they looked at fluctuations around the trend, and it looked like fluctuations around the trend did not have any cycle. You know, they were kind of, I won't go into technicality, but you know. No, so it's quite right. If within your data set there has not been a big shock like this, how can your model predict it? Well, the answer to that is there's a much larger data set, which goes back 200 years in which there are frequent crises and cycles. And certainly, again, uh, to go 
autobiographical. When I was doing my master's degree in, in Bombay, we had a paper called Fluctuations and Growth, and there are serious textbooks written on business cycles. Within 10 years of my doing MA, uh, graduate in 1960, there was a book called Is the Business Cycle Obsolete? And that was written by, by, by some sort of proto-Keynesians. And people say, no, you know, Keynes is a limited business cycle. There is no such problem. And therefore, you know. So economists stopped discussing business cycles. And the, and the debates were really about, uh, you know, micro-foundations or microeconomics. So here we have an experience which was outside anybody's uh, uh, historical sample. But go back 200 years, starts in 1780s, 1780s to uh, 2010, let's say, and there are many cycles. And so I go back to some very old-fashioned, completely neglected bits of economics to construct the alternative argument, which you may explain. And that consists of what Marx said about business cycles. He was the first person to talk about business cycle. There, there was a man called Jukilar who had measured cycles, but didn't have a theory. And Marx's theory of business cycle was roughly in terms of the struggle between wage share and profit share. You know, that, that, that there was a cyclical component to uh, when, when, the market, when the labor market got tight, wage share went up, profit share went down, but then capitalists replaced labor with machinery or went out of business, and then you had a, uh, so, so, so wage share fell, profit share rose. But as soon as that happened, more people came into the market and started hiring workers. And there is a modern analog uh, uh, written 100 years after Marx wrote his Capital Volume 1 by a man called Richard Goodwin, who, who did the, the game of foxes and rabbits, as some of you may know. You know, foxes eat rabbits, uh, if, if foxes eat too many rabbits, the rabbit's population declines, foxes starve. While foxes are starving, rabbit's population grows. So by the time rabbit is gone, the, the foxes can start eating rabbits again. And, and you get in this cyclic situation. And he formulated that as a pair of nonlinear differential equations. So it's a beautiful model. Uh, I, I did a lot of work on that. And their idea is that there are cycles in wage share and profit share, which... Marx thought were roughly 10 years, but you know, the length of the cycle would depend upon uh, its parameters of the model. Then there was um, Schumpeter, who said, you know, Marx's theory of the instability of capitalism and all that is not really, you know, he's sort of too negative. The real thing is that entrepreneurs come on the scene, there are innovations, and innovations set of 50 year long cycles. And big innovations like cotton spinning revolution, you know, in, uh, in the 1780s, and railroads, then at the end of the 19th century, electricity and all that. And these innovations set of 50-year cycles, which in which are involved with credit creation, inflation, and then profits go up and then profits go down again. And economic, uh, economics of capitalism is explained by a series of 50-year cycles. And the third man was, uh, okay, and then of course there's Vixel. Vixel was uh, a, a late 19th century economist. He believed in the truth of Valrasian system. But he also saw that there were business cycles. So he said, there is a problem here which I have to solve. Valrasian system has no money. It's based on barter. 
So if I can integrate money into the system, and, and he had a theory that basically cycles arose because the rate of interest at which banks were willing to lend money was sometimes below the rate of profit. So there are a lot of people borrowing money, investing it, make, you know, the boom starts because people are scrambling around making money, and after a while the banks panic and put up the interest rate, and a lot of people go out of business. So he had a cycle based on the, monetary, the money and credit effects of profit rate versus interest rate. And then there was a man called Kondratiev. Kondratiev was, was a young Russian statistician who established a, a research uh, a center, and he, he traced, he dated 50-year cycles from 1780s on, roughly 50-year cycles. And in this, these are heuristic devices. Nobody has really sat down and created a research center to put real mathematical meat into all these arguments. I mean, it could be done. Somebody, you know, somebody could do it. If I was 40 years younger, I would, I would do what you know, sometimes they're doing it, but somebody else will do it if they find it interesting. But I idea that there are these suggestive things around, and maybe economics ought to explore this kind of underground macroeconomics, which we have forgotten, and maybe there is something there to, to create the next... Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are, there are some new ideas needed, like behavioral economics, whatever it is, but the old ideas are also there, which we could kind of, you know, retrieve and rush. <clears throat> okay. Can I take five more minutes? Five more minutes. Okay. The last part of the book is my story of what happened and why it happened. And my story of what happened, why it happened, again, sort of goes around. So after the war, after the, 19, uh, after the Second World War, for about 25 years, we have a Keynesian boom, 45 to 70. Weight share goes up very, very sharply. The whole Phillips curve thing is popular because weight share is going up. Wages are rising faster than productivity. Profits are being squeezed. And in says one way, inflation was a solution to maintain that kind of peace between the fights between wages and profits. But then, early in the 70s, we have it almost by accident. Two things happened. First of all, uh, the Americans uh, renege on the commitment to maintain dollar-gold link. The Bretton Woods system collapses. And secondly, oil prices quadruple. And that begins a downward cycle. Downward cycle, we used to call stagflation. Unemployment rising, inflation high, and, and so we, we, we had that, that problem. Wage share reaches a peak in early 70s and then has not regained that, 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 uh, that level ever since. In America, the effect was much more severe. What happened, what happened from developed countries, manufacturing migrated abroad. The squeeze on profits when the people who wanted to make profit in manufacturing decided that you could no longer locate it in developed economies, it went to Asia. And yeah, we saw Mrs. Thatcher destroyed manufacturing. Mrs. Thatcher was just part of the Kondratiev cycle. Uh, and it, it, it all went to Asia. And certainly industrialization of Asia takes place when the industrialization of the West starts. And in the Western economies, we suddenly have lower share of manufacturing and total income. The skilled and unskilled manual workers who had stable jobs which, you know, 
48 years of your life, 48 weeks per year, 48 hours per week, as used to be said in, in a British trade union thing, suddenly that solid base disappeared. And there were service sector jobs, low-paid service sector jobs for the unskilled, high-wage uh, uh, service sector jobs for those who are graduates in finance and so on. And the whole, the whole growth of inequality very much arises from this removal of manufacturing as a stabilizing force for income low, lower down. And then as the economy recovers, uh, sort of 73, but 20 years later, we get a recovery in, in the early 1990s. At that stage, there is recovery, but the workers' income have not, not really gone back to the old equilibrium. But the financial markets are very efficient, so borrowing is easy. So then you get a kind of Excelian effect. People start borrowing. And we, we, we financed a boom based on borrowing, subprime mortgages, and so on. And that boom collapsed. You know, and that, that upper phase of Kondratiev cycle was short. 1990 to 2008, it collapsed then. And we may be, sad to say, in the downward phase of Kondratiev, which will last 20 years. That's the good news I'm giving you. Uh, you know, you'll have low growth and low inflation. You know, I never thought when I was fighting the monetarists, or, or they, were, you know, they were dominant, that central bankers would go around hoping for higher inflation. I mean, the shock of that, it took me, I still get up every morning, and, how could this happen? You know, why, you know, I thought inflation was such a danger that everybody thought, we must get it down. Now there are poor central bankers worried about low inflation. And uh, anyway, so as I said, there are no long-term universal laws in economics, just kind of contingent, uh, contingent things which happen. So read the last section, and you might find that explanation satisfying. Said that you know that you have to think in terms of 50-year cycles within which there are there are wage profit cycles, there are Vixel cycles, and altogether you can tell a story. Maybe not yet a fully mathematical story, but you can tell a story which will explain to you why. <coughs> now, in the in the second part of the subtitle of the book, it's a bit of a fraud. I'm not actually going to tell you how to avoid the next one. What I really mean, how to avoid missing out predicting the next one. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so we're going to uh, now have a couple of uh, responses to, uh, to Magnad, um, and I'll start with Stephen King and then with Charles Goodhart. Uh, well, Magnet, thank you. Oh, sorry. Uh, thank you very much indeed for uh, a really fascinating uh, presentation. Uh, my first task is simply to, to tell you all to, to buy the book, uh, because it is a, a really Good marvelous brand. book. Good it's brand. a marvelous book, um, and it appeals to two observations I'd make about the teaching of economics. I think it is not good enough in teaching economic history. I don't think it's good enough in teaching the history of economic thought. So put those two things together. Uh, if you feel as though you've missed out on some of those areas, his books are all in there, which is just wonderful. Um, I, I wanted to make a few observations on, um, on belief, actually, about why it is that Policymakers, economists believe so strongly in things that subsequently prove to be untrue. And um, I put together a series of, of quotes um, from various people, um, which 
in hindsight, are, are quite amusing. Um, so this one uh, works as follows. We are talking here about homes where there is not the degree of leverage that we have seen elsewhere. This is not the dot-com situation. You're not going to see the collapse that you see when people talk about a bubble. Uh, those of us on the House Finance Committee will continue to push for home ownership. Uh, that was Barney Frank um, in 2005. Um, another quote I quite like, because it's kind of relevant for today. Um, first, if the housing bubble were to deflate on its own, would the effect on the economy be exceedingly large? Second, is it unlikely that the Fed could mitigate the consequences? And third, is monetary policy the best tool to use to deflate a house price bubble? My answers to these questions in the shortest possible form are no, no, and no. Um, that was Janet Yellen in 2005. <laughs> this one you'll immediately spot, I think. For 40 years, our economy has had an unenviable history under governments of both parties of boom and bust. So, against a background of mounting uncertainty and instability in the global economy, we set about establishing a new economic framework to secure long-term economic stability and put an end to the damaging cycle of boom and bust. That was Gordon Brown, of course, in 97. Importantly, um, he didn't refer to Tory boom and bust, as we later claimed. He was referring to boom and bust from both parties over the previous few decades. Um, then perhaps more an academic approach here. Um, this is from 2001. Uh, the decrease in output volatility was associated with and may have largely been caused by the decrease in inflation volatility that occurred around the same time. And the increased stability of inflation is likely to have been due in large part to better monetary policy. Um, this is the beginnings of the whole debate or the whole observational claim about the great moderation. That was Olivier Blanchard. Uh, recently retired from the IMF in 2001. And this is backed up by another person who said in 2004, this conclusion, which is Blanchard's conclusion, makes me optimistic for the future because I am confident that monetary policymakers will not forget the lessons of the 1970s. That was Ben Bernanke. Um, and then finally, another famous one here. Um, this is in March 2003. My thesis is that macroeconomics in its original sense has succeeded. Its central problem of depression prevention has been solved for all practical purposes and has in fact been solved for many decades. That was Robert Lucas in March 2003. So one sort of observation about all this is, is why is it that those who might be willing to say things might go wrong are typically not listened to? Why is it that during the good times, um, policymakers, many economists, politicians, all want to believe that the good times will continue and that when there are warnings that perhaps things will go wrong, those warnings are typically unheeded? Um, so actually, you mentioned at the very beginning of your book, you talk about um, various people who got part of the story right, and you mentioned Nouriel Roubini. Um, I wasn't sure that Rubini got it right because I had to reread the speech he gave at the IMF in 2006. But actually, when you read the speech, it's not bad. Um, it sort of makes a series of observations and predictions that arguably were broadly right, um, but he wasn't taken terribly seriously. I, I have my own personal experience of this. Um, well, I'm not taken terribly seriously all the time, of course. But um, in, in this particular uh, case, I'd written a piece back in 1999 uh, which is called Bubble Trouble. Um, and it was a, a prediction which, actually one of the few predictions I've ever got right, but it was a prediction that um, the US equity market was a bubble 
um, that um, it was likely to burst and that there could be some kind of recession um, that would follow. And then my job as, at HSBC as an economist is really to go and see our esteemed clients and so on and tell them and give them advice as to uh, what may or may not be going on. Um, and I had huge difficulties with this story, um, in part because no one really wanted to believe it, in part because there were people who had absolutely convinced themselves that the new economy, as it was called at the time, was, was absolutely for real. Um, and in one meeting in 2000, uh, just before the Nasdaq bubble actually burst, this was a meeting in Germany, um, I was thrown out of the meeting. I mean, not physically, of course, but um, I was asked to leave because the, the fund manager who was taking the meeting said, like, I've heard these stories of doom and gloom before. I have no interest in them. You just don't understand what is going on. So there was a kind of almost like a psychosis of, of beliefs that uh, persuaded people that somehow the problems really had been solved or that if there was bubbly behaviour going on, uh, there was a, a rational explanation um, for it. Um, another example of this actually uh, goes back to uh, 1989. I can't remember exactly the, the word-for-word quote, but there was a quote in The Economist which suggested that in 1989, the Japanese had discovered ways of running their corporations, which meant that genuinely they were worth you know, four times, eight times than more than American companies or British companies. And The Economist published this in all seriousness that suggested that the, NASD, uh, the, the Nikkei, sorry, at 39,000 uh, was still a good buy. Um, it was a good buy and a different kind of good buy, as it turned out. Um, <laughs> so I, I wonder why it is that the, these beliefs exist. And indeed, even when people warn that things might go wrong, there's a sort of a collective sense that things can't go wrong. And I also wonder whether this is partly the political process that the economists and advisors who are sometimes selected to work for particular governments are selected precisely because they aren't going to rock the boat or they're not going to challenge, they aren't going to question and they're not going to warn of things that might um, eventually go wrong. Um, so that might reveal that perhaps fashion is important in economics. I could perhaps call your book not just hubris but also fashion, that things go in and out of fashion and um, uh, it turns out that uh, some of those fashions are purely fashions and don't really have uh, many foundations um, behind them. The second issue which is related to this is that macroeconomists um, have a habit of being really, I don't mean this in a rude way, may, may come across as being rather rude, but being really quite arrogant about their particular views. They, they sometimes talk with great certainty uh, about what their framework is for the world, whether it's a Keynesian framework or a monetarist framework. And of course you've got the current debate between stimulards and austerians and so on. And this debate is very, very heated, and people have very, very strong beliefs, even though we know that estimates of the output gap, multipliers, and so on are hugely uncertain, but it doesn't stop people having these uh, very powerful beliefs. And um, if you're interested in reading on that, um, uh, Diane Coyle, um, a famous public intellectual in the UK, uh, wrote a rather good piece in the FT on the Exchange website, uh, which goes into this debate. Um, and, of course, as soon as she wrote it, she was attacked by many people uh, who thought that um, she was uh, daring to question their own arrogance, but I thought it was a perfectly reasonable article. Um, so there's a sort of issue there. Um, I was very, very pleased that you mentioned um, Schumpeter. And I, I have a question, really, which is I, I wonder whether we've lost sight in recent years of some of the issues associated with Schumpeter and the idea of creative destruction and liquidation and so on. Um, because in thinking about the response to the crisis, we've had tremendously loose monetary conditions in many parts of the world. Um, I wonder whether those loose monetary conditions have, if you like, allowed large 
inefficient companies, I'm not referring specifically to banks here, but uh, large inefficient companies to remain large and inefficient, and whether as a consequence of that it's made it much more difficult for small start-up companies to enter into certain industries, and as a consequence that may have been damaging from the point of view um, of productivity performance. So I, I just wonder whether there's a relevance currently for the poor productivity performance and whether that is in part a Schumpeterian story. Um, I was, in one sense, surprised and at the same time delighted that you had all the comments about Kondratiev and Kondratiev waves, although I would note that in my experience on Kondratiev, um, I don't mean to be rude about him, um, but I discovered Kondratiev actually not through economics but rather through the various technical analysts that work in the city um, who have an expertise which... um, it's the equivalent of divining things through tea leaves, as far as I can tell. I may be being very unfair about them, but they strongly believe in, in Kondratiev ways amongst another number of other ways. And I just I wonder whether, as a consequence of their beliefs in them, it is difficult to persuade the mainstream that actually Kondratiev should be taken yeah. uh, uh, seriously. And um, you made the point yourself that in, in the book that I think there were, is it six waves since 1780 or something like that? Something like six waves. Um, and y- although you said in your presentation that perhaps you could devise some kind of mathematical model for it, I think, well, if you've only got six observations, I wonder whether that really exactly. is going to uh, work particularly well. Um, so I just, I just wonder about that. Um, and um, just a few other sort of, I suppose, finishing remarks. Uh, the first is DSG models have become absolutely dominant across all central banks. Um, I found that models in experience that I've had, which is fairly limited, but uh, my team of economists at HSBC have often struggled to get the models to say anything useful. Um, so when we did the work on bubble trouble back in 1999-2000, we tried to create a kind of model simulation that would give you a recession in response to a collapse in equity prices. Um, the model that we used, and I won't say which one it was, it would be unfair, but um, the model we used made it totally impossible to create a recession. Uh, so effectively, the models being used by central banks and by others uh, effectively rule out the really interesting things that matter uh, for policymakers, which I think is really uh, quite disappointing. Um, on your explanation um, for what's happened and what may happen in the future, it clearly is a very interesting disequilibrium explanation. I like the idea that uh, it's moved away from the whole issue of, of equilibrium. And I guess the way you would summarize it is it's a mixture of Kondratiev, Schumpeter, Marx, Hayek, and Wicksell. I think that's what you're kind of getting at. Um, But this comes back again to the issue of fashion, which is um, if you were an economist working as a policy advisor saying, I've got this wonderful new Kondratiev, Schumpeter, Marx, Hayek, Wicksell model, um, I I wonder how easy it would be to persuade the powers that be, the central bankers, the the finance ministers, and so on, uh, to, to, to take that model in, seriously, and I think one reason for that, it, it, one, one, one difficult reason, is that, of course, the model may be saying things about the next 10, 20 years, yeah. and particularly in the, the Western democratic cycle, you know, politicians are interested in the next four or five years and no more than that, and often interested in hard numbers and hard predictions rather than the risks around those predictions. So that strikes me as being a, a bit of an issue. And then finally, going back to the, the issue of disequilibrium, um, I, I wonder if you could perhaps offer some thoughts as to whether we have a disequilibrium currently. Specifically, that when you look at what's happened to financial asset prices in recent years, and you look at what's happened to economies in recent years, it seems to me that there's a, a potential disconnect between the two, what I describe as 
uh, a kind of financial hope triumphing over economic reality. And I wonder whether that story can, can continue indefinitely. If it can't, um, how would that be um, eventually resolved? But, um, but first of all, you know, finally, thank you very much. And I just stress, it's a great book, so definitely go and buy it. <laughs> Uh, our next respondent is Charles Goodhart. Uh, I first came to LSE in 1966. Um, that was about a year after Magnat had arrived. And he was more or less just the same then. He was just as enthusiastic, just as fluent, uh, just as lovable then as he is now. And, and indeed, his hair has remained exactly the same. <laughs> much like a wire brush. The only thing that has changed has been its colour. Um, and um, I don't know, Magnet, whether you were like me. One of the reasons I went into um, macroeconomic, academic macroeconomics was that I thought it was so bad that I might actually have a chance of making it a bit better. Um, and uh, at the end of my career, I have to say, I failed. Uh, I don't know whether you have that same feeling. Uh, because Good guys failed. Well, I'm, if, if anything, macroeconomics, in my view, is considerably worse now um, than it was about 50 years ago. And the golden age, when we were optimistic about it, uh, was in the 1960s, when a combination of the arrival of computing power and a lot more data made us think that we would be able to undertake empirical work that would enable us to understand how the economy worked. Um, and that, unfortunately, fell apart and has never, never really been reconstructed. And one of the reasons, I think, why uh, it fell apart uh, is because of the economists' love of the concept of equilibrium. And it's very difficult and not to go back to that concept because it's, it's, a, it's the way we tend as a profession to organize our thoughts. Uh, but yet I think it is very debilitating uh, because the world actually is not like that. And what happens is you get a shock. And if the shock is as large as the great financial crisis was, what then occurs is that you have many institutional, legal, and regulatory changes. And these change the framework in which we as individuals all live. And that means it changes our behavior in ways that is very difficult, in fact, almost impossible, to work out in advance. So as our behavior changes in a new institutional context, what we will get is that fate will bring about other events, and we will therefore have other shocks which will lead again to institutional, legal, and regulatory changes. So the whole process actually operates in a, a continuing evolution of disequilibrium rather than the static equilibrium, which economists, in order to make their own life easier, uh, tend to work. And this kind of evolutionary disequilibrium is far, far harder uh, to, to, to deal with to be able to analyze. 
But because the economists, macroeconomists in particular, tend to live in a world which, even with trends and DSGE, is essentially one of static equilibrium, it means that all the sort of the interactions with other social disciplines tend to get lost. Um, and I think that they, they, it leads to an oversimplification, to a lack of, of understanding and concern about the historical progress uh, in process in which we are all operating. Um, and Bob Lucas has been the leading figure in macroeconomics uh, over the last sort of 25 years. Um, and I agree that going to micro-foundations was a good idea. The problem was that they went to the wrong micro-foundations. Uh, the micro-foundations that is involved in the DSGE models, the micro-foundations, in fact, that are generally utilized, uh, assume that financial system works perfectly. And for the financial system to work perfectly, it assumes that everyone with 100% probability carries out all their commitments and contracts. There is no default in any of this. If there's no default, you don't need a financial intermediaries like banks. You don't need Stephen. That might be a nice result, but unfortunately, <laughs> uh, we have to have people like, like Stephen. I'm the, if there was no default, you wouldn't need a bank because everyone could borrow or lend at the single riskless interest rate. And you wouldn't need money because my IOU would be just as good as the Bank of England's IOU. In fact, it would be sort of effectively identical. And what's more, you see, there'd be no fraud in this world of DSGE. And that means there's no finance. So there are no financial frictions. And one of the problems with the DSGE models is that the real frictions that really drive the big ups and downs are not, I'm afraid, Kondratiev waves. Uh, they are much more the financial crises that affected us in 1929, in the interwar period, and affected us again in, in 2008-2009. And, you know, what has Kondratiev have got to do with financial crises and world wars and all the rest of it? Um, Schumpeter, yes. Kondratiev, no. <laughs> um, and finally, the other sort of last major problem of macroeconomics um, is that it ought to be an empirical science. Um, and actually, it's not macroeconomics for essentially two reasons. Um, and they're both is that it's too hard to do. And the, we can't do controlled experiments. Think what medicine would be like if you couldn't do controlled experiments. Think what any, almost any of the sciences would be like if you couldn't do controlled experiments. And it's just extraordinarily difficult. And it's not only that you can't do controlled experiments. It's that the effect of your experiments changes the way that people understand the world in which they live and therefore changes the way that they behave. So even if you could do a controlled experiment, the outcome of that controlled experiment would change people's understanding of the world, which would mean that it wouldn't necessarily work in exactly the same way the next time. So you, it, it, it's, it's really quite extraordinarily difficult to do. 
Um, and we don't know where we are. We certainly don't know how to forecast. Um, and um, it's, 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 it's rather a sad scene. Um, <laughs> I, you know, um, it's very difficult to know where one ought to go, but um, maybe the first thing to do is to try and get some proper financial frictions, some proper understanding of the interaction between finance and macroeconomics uh, into the models that we use. Um, but the main thing to do tonight is to buy Magnad's book. <laughs> Where, Not read, just buy. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> the, Magnad's criticism of, the, of, the, of, of present macroeconomics is absolutely marvellous. And I, you know, Schumpeter and Vixel, I think, are wonderful. Uh, but Kondratiev is for the birds. <laughs> Very good. Thank you very much. Okay, so what we're going to do uh, is open to the floor. Anyone who wishes to offer a more uh, optimistic take on uh, the state of macroeconomics is very welcome to uh, chip in with it uh, as we as we discuss. Um, so I'm seeing one question at the back, and then what we'll do is Magnad will respond a little bit to what we've heard already, yeah. and we'll sort of Let, get the discussion the questions going. Together. So one, one at the back there and one in the middle there. Um, I'm aware that there is, there's a mic for the top. So, so if you pass the, the mic along that row as well, we'll take three together, and then Magnad will come in. Yeah. Uh, towards the end of um, Actually, his intervention. Actually, can you say who, who you are before you ask your question? Yeah, my name is uh, Serge Ramay. I work in the finance industry. <laughs> Towards the end of uh, his intervention, Professor Goodhart has alluded to the uh, to frictions and to the problem of fraud. Uh, two of the uh, the crises that were referenced by Mr. King uh, had to do with uh, with fraud at their heart. Uh, when you talk about the dot com bubble, there were a series of fraudulent transactions, capacity sales that were boosting uh, reported sales of companies. There were statements about growth of uh, demand which were proven to be false. When you talk about the, the housing crisis, there was a significant uh, fraudulent origination of mortgages. And all these transactions, um, all these uh, fraud which were perpetrated had massive uh, um, impact in terms of people's perception of how the economy was doing. So my question, given that those two crises that were recent had fraud at their heart, is what can macro teach us about how to detect fraud or how fraud is uh, built into macro assumptions? Okay, good. We're going to put, bring the mic to this gentleman here, but meanwhile, I think you've already got it up there, so why don't you go ahead? Hi, my name is Arasa. I work in the uh, investment bank. Um, I'm just wondering like, uh, what economists do to communicate more effectively their knowledge and views to the public, especially here in the UK. So even if he had predicted it, we don't really hear much from you. Um, I think maybe we allow the politicians to tell too much of the tale. I'm Lawrence Simons. I live, live here in London. Um, you talk quite a lot about bubbles, um, and bubbles are, I think, as we all know, are quite easy to spot once they've burst. But I'm just wondering um, whether you can see any bubbles inflating now and, which, and where they would be. Okay, so, Magnad, you perhaps come in and, and I'll invite... Charles and Stephen also, if they wish to, to add anything. But, uh. Well, you know, I thought, I was sort of also around what uh, Stephen and Charles said. Um, 
It's very difficult for people to uh, incorporate history of things like bubbles or collapse of dot-com boom and so on back into the theory because it will require a major revision of the theory. It's much easier to say there was a random shock. And that random shock we can discount. You see, uh, to be slightly theoretical, in a well-raised economy, nothing can happen. Once you start, Big Bang equilibrium is established, not only now, but forever and ever. How do you explain movements in time series if you're a Walrasian? It has to be random. So the new classical economics says there are supply shocks and there are demand shocks. And supply, sometimes the supply curve gets shocked, and so you generate... But all movements are self-reversing. Now, none of the financial market stuff is in the in the new classical macroeconomics, there's sort of one, one as one bond, and uh, they, they talk about micro foundation, but there's one consumer who is infinitely time replicated. So in, in kind of you, you get that. now, we just haven't had any relationship of theory to practice in terms of financial markets. There is a finance theory. There is economic theory, and they have not kind of merged. Finance theory was influenced very powerfully by economists saying markets are efficient. And I explain in my, in my book how we got into that theory, uh, markets are efficient. So Robert Schiller, for example, did warn about irrational exuberance. And he was saying that uh, before the dot-com boom collapsed, uh, you know, this is a bubble which will, which will collapse. But uh, nobody, nobody took that seriously. And when the, when the dot-com boom did collapse, I don't think economists ever felt, oh, God, this is a serious challenge to a theory. Economists don't see any serious challenge. Even now, much of the standard macroeconomics does not see any challenge to the theory in terms of what would happen in the recession. Because internally, the logic explains that not being able to predict is part of the strength of the theory. And it's, so maybe, maybe you probably want to come back to that. Uh, in, a, in a sense, the great thing about politicians and economists is politicians want quick answers. You know, I mean, I, I have been on the periphery of politics, and uh, I've often talked economics to uh, politicians, but we had a colleague called Alan Walters here who was a professor of monetary economics here. And he was advisor to uh, Margaret Thatcher. And Alan had this ability, you know, the prime minister asked you a question. Now, what do you think of such and such? You had to give an answer, which was within the ballpark. It may be uh, between 35% to 65% right. If next day you said, you know, prime minister, I was saying to you yesterday, I have done some further research and I have got a better answer, she would say, that was yesterday. I'm not interested. I've got another problem now. And so the politicians very often, their perspective uh, in, in terms of problems, and, and Alan Walters told me this himself about uh, 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 I think. This is also another story, I'm telling story, I'll tell a story. During the 
when the Falklands were about sort of about to erupt, Alan Walters went to uh, Margaret Thatcher and said, Prime Minister, I have, I have done careful analysis of this. And he said, you know, there are at least 2,000 people uh, living in the Falkland Islands. I said, why don't we give them the following option? That if they leave, we give them a million pounds. If they want to stay, then we will abandon the effect. It will only cost, you know, X billion. And he said, you know, I thought, you know, Margaret Thatcher believed in the market and so on. He said, Margaret Thatcher looked at me witheringly. She said, Professor, it is not a question of money. So, you know, politicians think very, very differently. They have a very different time horizon, and they don't really have patience for the correct answer. Even if you, they want, they want, you know, it's fast food. Ah. <laughs> uh, no, there is something called the bubbles. What was it with the bubbles? Fraud. Yeah, you're saying fraud. fraud. Question about fraud. Is oh, fraud, fraud yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you know, I, you know, one of the amazing things about uh, economists, they not really don't read uh, history, they probably don't even read novels. Uh, you know, in, at least in, in, in English economics, if you go through the 19th century, there's a big suspicion of banks and bankers and markets because you know, both right-wing radicals and left-wing radicals had no faith in these people's probity or honesty. They were all bankers, you know, were fraud, frauds. In America, the further out west you go, further out southwest you go, they believe all bankers are fraudsters. Very, very strong belief. They will only accept cash, they will not accept any checks. And, and so we have somehow made banking much more respectable lately. People have forgotten about frauds. But uh, as, as uh, Charles was saying, you know, to believe that nobody is going to renege or default uh, is, is far too much. Now, you know, one, one of the things I would say, and, and this partly covers uh, uh, what, what Charles was saying, is the picture, I, because I also read a lot of... Uh, somewhat unscientific left-wing literature, Marx and so on. Marx's picture was that capitalism has to go through a cycle of overvaluation, and only a crisis can clean up the system and, and, and let, let the overvalued people go bankrupt, and then you start all over again. So disequilibrium is part of the way the system reproduces itself, you know, survives by going up and down. If it didn't go up and down, it would not be able to cure the bad eggs out of the system. So, you know, he had a thing called the fictitious capital, some other thing about the forward fictitious capital. Now, in a sense, the way capitalism has worked for, what, 200, 250 years is, you know, people have built fortunes, gone out of business, done inventions, and so on. And finance and economics have been very intimately related in real life. The fact that economists have not done it, that's another story. And so this particular crisis, 2008, has been much more blatant about banking fraud than anything that we remember. You know, you know. So maybe we will learn more about how to integrate fraud into our, our analysis. And, you know, no, no idea. One more thing I want to say about uh, what Charles was saying about the optimistic days of macroeconomics when we were both young and, uh, and, and hopeful, optimistic. 
I remember being at a meeting in the American Economic Association and Robert Solow, later on Nobel Prize winner, he said, he said, we now have the models and we now have the computers. There are no problems left to solve in macroeconomics. <laughs> 1964. <laughs> and, and there was here uh, in the idea that if you can design the, if you can model the economy as like a servo mechanism, you can then have optimal control theory applied to that. And at Queen Mary College, there was a program, this is, this is 40 years ago, which even went on television, where Professor Maurice Peston and another man called Kent Wall, and there was a MP whose name will come to me, uh, very good uh, sort of mathematician. They had a public program and said, public only has to give us their targets and their desires, and we will integrate that into our model and give you the answer what the policy should be to achieve those. I mean, there was, you know, there, this was 1972, before oil price quadrupled. But you know, there was a lot of hope. People thought that, yes, we can design, we can think of the economy as a machine. We design a model of how the machine works, and then we can design how to make them machine work in such a way that there'll never be any disturbances. Okay, we'll go for another round of questions, but I can't help but remark at this point that for those who haven't seen it, they should go to the Science Museum and see the Phillips machine. Oh, Phillips machine, yes. So absolutely. Bill Phillips, who uh, Magnab referred to earlier, literally designed a machine to model the economy. And I actually can, talk about that in my book. Yeah, and you can go, if you wish, and see the original Phillips machine sitting there in a glass case. Um, one of the first, first, first pre-computer. It was a, first, it was a first physical machine. Computer, yeah. Okay, we're going to have another round of questions. So I'm seeing a question down here, um, and I'm going to go up the top, and then another one down here on the end. Okay, so we go along the row here, then on the end of the row, right at the front. Uh, there, that's right. Just there, there, and then. Yeah. Okay, so we'll start again. Yeah. My name is Raj Bansali. I am an emeritus professor of statistics at Liverpool University, and a visiting professor at Imperial. I had the pleasure of being taught by McNath in my second year undergraduate at LSE <laughs> when he had applied econometrics and also writing a joint paper with Charles Goodhart. On, uh, but anyway, my question is, uh, at some point, you describe various ills with uh, economics as a discipline and where it's lost its way. I think at some point, economists decided that there should be a science. And that probably led them to produce testable hypotheses, which data did not always support. Perhaps you would comment how justified was that pathway, and should we remain on that or move more towards behavioral economics? Okay, question up the top there. Well, thank you very much, Professor Desai. Um, I am an ignorant uh, student of economics, and therefore I would try like to learn from case studies. Um, when you mentioned that microeconomics should work well and thereafter you don't need macroeconomics, if I rightly understood you, if we consider the case of Japan as a micro and a macroeconomy, the level of efficiencies they have in their social structures, in their institutions, which are reflective of the culture and the norms uh, of that particular social structure. Uh, yet, I am slightly perplexed that um, 
they are having macroeconomic issues. They have uh, 200% uh, their debt is internal debt. Uh, is 200% of their GDP. So uh, where is a healthy balance? Or how to, I mean, if I understood your uh, statement correctly, the significance of micro measures on the macro measures. Thank you. Then there was down the front here. Uh, Toby Jamis from Goldsmiths. Uh, it was really great to have a breath of fresh air. I think um, kind of revisiting a lot of the old theories is incredibly refreshing. Do you think heterodox economics is going to be on the rise and we're going to see a, a, a big sea change in the discourse? Okay, and I'll yeah. invite Charles and Stephen okay. also. Yeah, you know, I think... There is no alternative but to go on trying to make it a science. Because, in a sense, otherwise you're being irresponsible. What else can you do? You, you can't suddenly get up every morning and think of a new idea and if you were, that's my new theory. At some stage, the theory has to confront some sort of systematic test. And I don't, you know, very often what, and, and this is going into some technical stuff, I think, in a sense, economists pretend that they are very mathematical. But their mathematics is very simple. Their mathematics is not complex enough for the subject. And we parade around saying, oh, this is very moral. Most of our models are linear. And most of our statistical distributions are normal. And, and, and we, we, then, we then can go around parading as if we, we've done something great. Now, it may be that one of the things we ought to be more like scientists. And, they do, you know, like Charles said about medicine, in medicine, you can't experiment. But the amount of progress that has been, for example, in brain, study of the brain, I mean, it's astonishing. And we haven't been able to match empirical studies of the economy with anything like uh, the intensity with which uh, uh, the medical people have done it. I think it may, one of the things I appeal for is we ought to get more empirical studies back into economics. Which, which, we, which we have, uh, you know, that, so that, that may or may not be the... Uh, now, let me just you, firstly, I was making a theoretical point, that if you believe in microeconomics, you don't need macroeconomics, theoretically, because microeconomics gives you answer of price and quantity in all the markets. You add up, and that is the total economy. Total economy is a sum of interesting uh, you know, things. And therefore, for a really strict, uh, strict uh, micro-foundation person, macroeconomics is just, you know, superficial uh, topping of it. Now, in Japan and what happened in Japan and so on is another very interesting story in terms of uh, quite a lot of people were saying, are we going to get into a Japanese-type situation? Are we right now in a Japanese-type situation? And what happens? You know, what happened, for example... When, when the stock market, as uh, uh, Charles, you know, and as uh, Stephen was saying, it is, it, th there is there is a thing in which you, if you get into overvaluation of assets, and then when that boom collapses, it may turn out that uh, people will people will not be able to find a way out of that thing, which is, again, the, the situation in Japan. Why it happened, we're all trying to understand. Bernanke has studied and so on. It is a, Japan got into one of these uh, 
if I may be allowed to say Conradif again, it's all in this long cycle. You know, I mean, I, I, I go on about Conradif. I think Stephen is quite right. There are only six complete cycles. And in, indeed, I say in my book that you cannot have a statistically reliable model when there are only six cycles. That's fine. But as a heuristic device, we really ought to understand why economies get into long periods of recession or depression or whatever you call it. We are, in my view, about to get into one of those periods, and we're going to stay there like, 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 some, you know, like some time. So if that, we don't actually understand why. Kondratiev only dated. He didn't just give us a theory of how the turning point comes, when, where it happens. Now, he said, oh, demographics and politics and so on. Bits, uh, bits of theory in Marx, or bits of theory in Schumpeter, bits of theory in Wixell, but nobody has integrated. You know, give me 20 million pounds and I'll set up a research center and hire people to, uh, to build this model that I want to build. But, you know, I mean, again, to go, going back to the first question, you know, this is a very serious enterprise. It has to be cooperative. It has to be always forward-looking, and it has to be rigorous. You know, just because I can tell an interesting story doesn't make me right. We have to actually take the data and take as much data as possible, use the best techniques, and you know, get get the best minds. But it, it may be that, you know, behavioral economics will give us a better answer. But even behavioral economics has got to be tested. You know, it's got, got, got to be a testable hypothesis. Come on. So, uh, there, so, is there one further? Oh, the question about heterodox economics. Oh, you know, I spent the flower of my youth talking about heterodox economics. I was one of the few people who knew all the different heterodoxes in economics. There are post-Keynesians, neo-Marxians, Austrians. Uh, and there was something called École de Dijon, uh, where they had very pickle views on money. <clears throat> I think mainstream economics treats these people with contempt. You know, they just does not listen to them. I mean, we have, we succeeded, you know, I shouldn't say we because it's kind of a heterodox movement. We succeeded in getting some really heterodox people, professorships in some respectable universities. Very hard work, I can tell you that. I, I, was, I cheated because I wrote this conventional econometrica type article, so I was allowed to do Marxian economics. It's all right, but you know, he, he, writes, he writes decent stuff as well. So we don't have to worry about what he writes on Marx. So I got away with it. But quite, quite a lot of who seriously did heterodox work, it, they found it very difficult in their career to convince their departments that they should be promoted because their colleagues were saying, but this is nonsense. You don't get into good journals. And so it's a... And there's all this thing about Thomas Kuhn and scientific revolutions and Popper and all that. We've been through all this. But the surprising thing is that economics right now does not think itself into a crisis, in my view. Anything to say? Should we? I think we have... Yeah, Stephen. Uh, just a, a couple of things. First of all, in your question about fraud, um, I work for a bank, so I'm... <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Charles secretly works for a bank um, to a certain degree. Um, but fraud is uh, a feature of the capitalist system. It's a, it's a feature of 
financial bubbles and busts. And, and I mean, Charles Kindleberger in Mania's Panics and Crashes describes the fraudulent activities that occur across all these um, various examples. So that fraud, in one sense, shouldn't come as a surprise. It's not something that's desirable, of course. But the fact that it repeats itself regularly, uh, particularly in the, in the 19th century and so on, is, is not a surprise. In one sense, the surprise is that we think it's a surprise when actually it's something that happens with some degree of, of regularity. And I think there's also a fairly obvious microeconomic explanation for some of it, which is that there's massive asymmetries of information in the financial system, um, that uh, some people are in a more privileged position than others. They can manipulate the situation to earn economic rents. Um, and the people left picking up the pieces, you know, pensioners 20, 30 years down the road, cannot easily connect what their losses might be with the activities of people within the financial system uh, many years earlier. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that it happens um, fairly regularly, and in one sense it's a failure of economists not to incorporate these sudden losses of trust, these moments of panic, into their economic models. So I think that's one observation to make. Second, on the question on Japan... Um, I think this is a really interesting question about macro versus micro, actually, because it is a real-life debate going on currently, um, to the extent that the former BOJ governor, Shirakawa-san, was someone who clearly believed that many of Japan's difficulties were micro rather than macro. He was resistant to the idea of offering massive macro stimulus because he believed that weaknesses were associated with for example, hollowing out of Japanese industry because of low-cost producers elsewhere in Asia, for example, demographic change, for example, the attitude towards women in the workforce, a whole bunch of things that contributed to a loss of momentum in Japan that had nothing really to do with QE or zero interest rates or fiscal stimulus. Uh, he lost his job in part because of that series of beliefs. Uh, Kuroda-san comes in, uh, who offers more a macroeconomic view, uh, but so far the evidence actually has not been particularly helpful um, for him because there was massive uh, QE in 2013, uh, much greater than most people expected. Uh, those who strongly believed in this kind of stimulus argued it would lead to much faster growth in 2013, 2014. I just wanted to, to sort of end by showing how useless forecasts are. So at the beginning of 2013, the consensus forecast for Japanese growth for 2014 uh, was growth of 1% in real terms. After QE, when the stock market began to boom, that forecast re was revised up from 1% to 1.7% 1 for 2014, which by Japanese standards is pretty good. The actual outcome for last year was zero. Um, in other words, <laughs> there seems to be no connection between yeah. uh, what well, is a very large macro stimulus and the impact on the economy, which raises, I think, some interesting questions about the macro versus micro debate. Just add one tiny comment. Don't assume that fraud is concentrated only among bankers. What do you think that you are doing when you write your CVs? <laughs> well, on that thought, I think I'll draw matters to, a, to a close. Before we get in any further Exactly. Trouble, so so I, I hope, I, I, I'm sure I speak for us all when I say what a stimulating and interesting discussion. I was reminded of one thing as I was listening. That when I, My first job was at Princeton when I was taken aside when I was making my first reading list by a senior colleague who said, for heaven's sake, don't put anything on the reading list that's more than five years old. Otherwise, you're bound to get the criticism from the students that the reading list is out of date. 
Well, I think what we've been offered by our panelists today is the need for perspective, historical perspective. We're actually getting out there and reading uh, things that have been written in the past, if necessary, bringing them up to date with, with evidence and ideas that are contemporary. But I think it's a really dangerous thing when we believe that all the knowledge that's worth knowing was created only in the last few years. And uh, listening to our distinguished panel, uh, I think, should make us all want to, first of all, rush outside and get a signed copy of, <laughs> of Magnad's book, but more to read widely uh, and to form the kind of intelligent and, and really stimulating perspective that we've heard from all three panelists this evening. So thank you very much to all three.